0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick.
0: And uh, it's Monday. This is the day of the week that we read back messages you've sent into the show. Uh, Rob, if you don't mind today, I think I'm going to get started with this message we got from Adam. Let's do it. Okay, this is replying to previous listener mail about the seven-day week episodes, uh, and uh, and a note here, Adam, who is a rabbi, uh, wrote in with a shorter message about the history of the Sabbath observance and uh, public Torah readings in the ancient Near East, and he mentioned uh, that his rabbinical thesis was actually on the subject of how space colonization might affect the observance of the Sabbath week, and obviously That's right up our alley. We were very interested in that subject, so he wrote in again to share more. So Adam says, Hey Joe and Rob, thank you for the fantastic show. I've been listening for years now. I'm thrilled to hear you're interested in the topic of my rabbinical thesis. It's called Eyes on the Horizon, Theological and Halakhic Challenges to the First Jewish Settlers on the Moon, Mars, and Beyond. I have always been uh, very scientifically minded, even as a rabbi. In rabbinical school, we needed to write a thesis before ordination. One day, while sitting in class, I had an epiphany. What would a Jewish prayer book look like for future exo-Jews living on Mars? I reached out to friends and colleagues and posed the question. I asked what blessings they may recite, for instance. In Judaism, a blessing is a formulaic sentence that makes a moment or ritual holy. Before eating an apple, for example, I may say, Blessed are you, eternal our God, ruler of the universe, creator of the fruit of the tree. So, I asked what blessings someone on Mars may recite. Is there a blessing for landing on a new celestial body, etc.? Before I found a thesis referee, I had been turned down by several professors. The first one said, quote, Judaism doesn't exist off-planet. That's not a thesis. Judaism is the relationship between God, Israel, and the earth. I eventually found someone who agreed to advise me. My thesis referee, being an expert in Jewish halakha, which is a Jewish law put forth by the rabbis throughout the centuries— recommended bringing in that aspect, so half of my thesis became a theological exploration of whether Judaism can exist off-planet, and what theological complications might arise by trying to live Jewishly off-planet. My second half focused on how one could follow Jewish law, particularly concerning the issue of Jewish time off-planet at all. One main thought experiment, for example, is the halakhic issue of the, quote, Lost Traveler. It is as follows... Suppose you are a religious Jew who is traveling through the wilderness. You realize that you have lost track of the day, so you don't know when Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath, will begin. Jewish law stipulates you must count six 24-hour periods from the moment you lost track. The seventh 24-hour period is to be your Shabbat. You must say the proper blessings one says on Shabbat. That way, you fulfill the commandment of keeping the Shabbat. However, you still cannot violate the actual Shabbat, even if you don't know which day it will actually be, so you must remain in a state of pseudo-Shabbat at all times until you have once again found civilization. That means you cannot do anything that counts as something forbidden on Shabbat. You may only do that which keeps you alive or helps you travel toward civilization once again. Thus, to apply it to the context of Jews living off-planet, if one has difficulty determining what day of the week it is, whether that means you must follow the time on Earth or the time of a Martian society, must that religious Jew remain in a state of pseudo-Shabbat on Mars? Mm. Finally, Adam attaches a link to a PDF of his uh, thesis so that we can take a look. Uh, maybe we will in the future, uh, and then says, "All the best, Adam." But uh, yeah, thanks so much, Adam.
1: Th- fascinating. I love it. Yeah, this is exactly what we were hoping we would uh, we would hear back from people on. Yeah, this is this is fascinating.
0: I mean, I think questions like this are actually really interesting from the religious point of view. Uh, even if you're not actually going to be applying them to, say, living off-planet. I mean, we're probably not going to be living off-planet in our lifetimes, but it's uh, very interesting from a religious point of view because it forces you to ask questions about, like, what is really the spirit of the law or of this requirement within my religion? So, if, like, So, so, you know, normally you can just follow the law as written, but if the circumstances of your environment change so that so such that it's not really possible to follow the law as written, say, if you're on a different planet and the law uh, depends on time periods that are contingent on the length of the day on Earth or something like that then it, it forces you to ask, okay, well, then what is the law really about? What is the law trying to get me to do, and how could I most closely replicate that uh, in a scenario where the law, as strictly written, can't apply?
1: Yeah, yeah. And and also just the, the sort of general theme of what, what happens when uh, you have a given religion and new uh, cosmological information presents itself. Uh, you know and uh, this is always uh, fun to discuss you know in many cases uh nothing changes, and maybe nothing has to change because certainly, like you said, we don't have people living in space uh but then you have some curious examples like uh you know some of the some details from uh from Hindu mythology where uh you had mythological entities based upon um you know observable cosmological uh, uh properties, and then as as knowledge of those things changed, so, too, then, did did the uh, structure of the mythological entities change.
0: Well, what do you mean by, the, like, uh, certain observations of heavenly,
1: like, the moon and the sun and things? Um, yeah, well, I think the, the example I'm drawing on, we discussed in our eclipse episode uh, mm. years back, uh, where you had uh, in different uh, interpretations of what was happening with, um, I, I can't recall offhand if it, was, if it was solar or lunar or both, um but as as a Hindu understanding of what uh, you know what the observable uh, phenomena happened to be changed uh, then instead of like separating that from the um, the mythological uh, model uh, they updated the mythological model which I oh. found very interesting hmm. anyway uh, f- fun episodes as I recall so go back and listen to those if anyone is interested yeah uh, I
0: think those may have been my first ever episodes on the show.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) A while back then. Yeah. All right, this next one uh, comes to us from Jolt. Uh, Hi, Robert and Joe. Just writing to chime in on the topic of connections between the names of days and markets, as brought up in the recent Listener Mail episode. In my native tongue, Hungarian, the word used for Sunday literally means market day. The pronunciation itself changed from the original word for market, uh, this is, would be Vassar, uh, uh, um, uh, to now being Vasarnap, uh Market Day, but the meaning is still there. Sunday, as the designated day for markets, goes back at least to the first king of Hungary and to the introduction of Christianity in the 11th century, but is still very much a cultural reality today with markets being held almost exclusively on Sundays, especially in the form of various pop-up markets uh, in the countryside and in villages. Thank you for the great show, Schultz.
0: I feel like we're seeing major themes emerge. Uh, there, there are like three main branches of of day naming conventions. One is naming them with numbers, so they go first day, second day, third day. The other is naming them in relationship to a market day, so you have a day that's called market day, and then others are named like... I don't know, first from market, second from market, something like that. And then the third is naming them after celestial bodies. So you've got Sunday, moon day, and so forth. And according to that last convention, we could actually look at this next message from Jacinth, who says... Listen to your episodes on the seven-day week. Great content. My mother tongue is Tamil, which is the language of the state of Tamil Nadu in India. Uh, here are the days of the week are the names of celestial bodies. I'm going to try these. I, I apologize in advance for mispronunciation, but Sunday is Nyayiru, meaning the sun. Monday is Thingal, meaning the moon. Tuesday is Chevai, meaning Mars. Wednesday is Pudan, meaning Mercury. Thursday is Vyajan, meaning Jupiter. Friday is Veli, meaning Venus, and Saturday is Sani, meaning S- Saturn. Uh, and then Jacinth says, uh, I'm an English literature graduate and generally love different language works. You learn a lot of fascinating things from various language literatures. Couldn't
1: agree more. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to some Weird House Cinema, listener mail. This first one comes to us from Charlie. Um, And uh, Charlie writes in and says, Hello, science boys, uh, B-O-I-S. I I have a simple question. (laughs) Semi-related to your Beastmaster 2 Weird House episode. Is Encino Man's Brendan Fraser a meat beast? If the requirements are, learns about rock music and slushy machines and teaching a young me my first Spanish phrase. Thanks, Charlie.
0: Excellent choice. You know, I was thinking of Encino Man while we were doing the Beastmaster 2 episode. (laughs)
1: I don't think I ever actually watched Encino Man. I think I was always a little turned off by the trailers for that one. I, I don't think I saw it either. I just know of it. Is That's he, one does, of those. Does he escape from a biodome? Like, I didn't see Biodome either. No. So I kind of have combined these into one film where Encino Man escapes a biodome uh, with Polly Shore. Encino Man is the unfrozen caveman
0: lawyer skit from SNL, but it's a mm-hmm. whole movie of it. I guess he's not a lawyer. He becomes like a rock and roll guy. Oh, okay. But yeah, he's just a caveman who they unfreeze him,
1: and here he is. He's learning. He's he's putting on high top sneakers. I mean, there are uh, other uh, caveman in the modern day films. I wonder uh, how robust that subgenre truly is, and how many of those we could classify as uh, as meat beast pictures. I recall Brendan Fraser being pretty buff
0: in the mm-hmm. in the uh poster art for for Encino Man. So I think he he, he comes pretty close. I don't know if he's full on barbarian uh but he's he's something. He's something in the zone. One last note here is I'm wondering why Charlie is calling us science boys because I'm reading BOIS is isn't that the French word meaning wood, bois? Science wood? I don't I don't, <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah, Web- Webster's is saying it's wood. Webster's is not necessarily hip to uh, slang.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, I like that. We are now the science wood. Build a treehouse out of us.
1: All right, what else do we have? This can't be the only listener mail we received about Beastmaster 2. Oh, no, it was not. Uh, let's see. Brian wrote in to
0: say, Hi, Robin, Joe. I was listening to your Weird House Cinema episode on Beastmaster 2 this morning during my daily walk. And as I always do when you're covering uh, a movie I haven't seen, I began looking for stills from the movie so I could have more context. I'd seen the original Beastmaster many times as a child. And the sight of the leather-clad, glowing-eyed meat man absolutely terrified me. I was mainly interested in seeing if this figure that haunted my nightmares returned in the sequel. He apparently does not. So, Rob, you are the person who knows about Beastmaster 1. Do you know who Brian is talking about? There's another meat man, but this one is scary.
1: Yeah, I don't recall the name of this, if this thing even had a name. But there's a a wonderful sequence in the film where we're in the the dungeons of... uh, of uh, the 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 evil uh, max played by rip torn and there's you know all sorts of like evil cult shenanigans going on down there hands reaching out of cages uh, it's it's wonderful scary stuff and there is this kind of like rampaging um like muscle man with like an iron mask and i think they've like jacked him up with some sort of uh nefarious uh magical chemicals uh so yeah it's, it's real real great nightmare stuff i mean we have to I have to remember with beastmaster too if you haven't seen it um you know this is the same mind that brought us a uh, uh, phantasm uh so there's plenty of mean like Beastmaster wild, one um yes i'm sorry Beast, Beastmaster one Beastmaster two had nothing to do with but uh yeah Beastmaster uh one uh this is don casarelli so yeah there's a lot of like really cool very creative ideas in there uh it's not just your blueprint barbarian film yeah you've got this you've got the yeah these 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 be- these uh, beefy men with the the, the iron masks. There are the the crazy cool uh, bird creatures, uh, the winged creatures that uh, uh, externally digest their prey. Oh, there's a there's some a bunch of other stuff as well. You have some hags, some wonderful hag action going mm-hmm. on. Love a hag. Mm-hmm. Does it have a ball like in Phantasm? Uh there's no there's no no ball, but uh, there, there's a magic ring. Okay, that's close. It's round. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so Brian's message is not over. Brian says
0: while searching for pictures from the movie, I came across its poster. I thought I might have mistakenly searched for Back to the Future Two instead of Beastmaster Two because the posters are shockingly similar. For your consideration, and then Brian attaches a uh, little screen captures of both posters, and whoo! I got that is that that is worthy of a lawsuit right there. <laughs> I mean that is really really close. Everybody's uh, it's framed the same way. It's got a similar color scheme. It's got the car coming out of the portal in the same orientation, and the characters posed the same way. Either this is just a, they're both taking part of a standard template for movie posters of the time, or, or Beastmaster Two is uh is doing doing a bit of a copycat job.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, it could be the same artist as well. I I wouldn't uh, discount that. I I didn't have time to to research these and and try and figure out who might've created them. Uh, but that's always a possibility. Maybe this is just how the particular artist tended to style things. Could be, could be. And, you know, and of course, movie posters are,
0: they're not always created ex nihilo. So maybe they're, uh, it, it, there's just sort of a template you know there's there's a format of how you were doing movie posters at the time and and a lot of them looked like this maybe maybe that's the case
1: there are some other posters i was looking around at for beastmaster 2 there's one that has a, a, a huge uh, wings hauser uh, on there with this little uh, phantom of the opera faceplate uh, mm. that one looks pretty good well, anyway, Brian goes on and says,
0: maybe I'm imagining things because I recently watched the Back to the Future trilogy, but I have a strong mental image of a Simpsons-esque, uh pony-tailed Hollywood executive saying, time travel, cars, lightning, high tops, put them on the box. <laughs> uh, in the hopes that Beastmaster 2 would cause a double take at the local blockbuster, someone out there knows the truth. Love the podcast and love the Weird House episodes. Please keep doing them, Brian. Now, one last thing I have to say about the Beastmaster Two poster is that they do not include Wingshauser or Sarah Douglas on the poster. You're only seeing the heroes, and I think
1: that's a mistake. Yeah, I mean you have you have some fun villains in that movie, so you might as well get them on the poster. Um, but uh, I don't know the, uh, this idea of like, yeah, you just need to turn heads at the video store. I mean that was that was a huge deal. Um, in fact, oh man, I was just thinking about this the other day. I was in Videodrome, our uh, our, our local uh, and, and our city's only video store, uh, video rental store. And I noticed they had like a new, I think a Blu-ray edition of the 1989 film, The Dead Pit, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Joe. I've, I've not actually seen it. Uh, it was directed by Brett Leonard and stars nobody in particular. Uh, but the, the crazy thing about it is the the classic VHS and now, uh, you know, Blu-ray DVD uh, art for this movie was this kind of Frankenstein-looking dude uh, kind of emerging uh, from a, uh, looks like a hole with hands reaching out of it, and there's like some some light behind him. And on the old VHS box, I guess it was like, they they must have sent this special, you know? Uh, The eyes lit up. It had a little bitty uh, like Halloween costume uh, uh, LED, I guess, sort of the predecessor to LED, uh, little eyes inside and it would light up and possibly make noises I don't remember particularly but the <laughs> eyes definitely lit up as so that when you were strolling through the horror section or the new arrival section it's like it's just shrieking for your attention I wonder if that kind of marketing gambit paid off like you you invest more money into complicated packaging <laughs> do more people rent it I don't know. Maybe they're like maybe they, they just thought, well, heck, we we picked this movie up for virtually nothing. Nobody wants to see this thing. What if we just throw a little more cash at the VHS box art? Because I think it was also it, it had kind of like a 3D cover as well. Um, it would just get people excited about it. They'll just be sold on it, and they'll just have to rent it. And I want to say there was at least one other film from the time period that did something like this with, uh, light up eyes. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, of course you don't see that anymore. And I was so, anyway, I was disappointed a little bit when I saw it there on the shelf at Videodrome and it didn't have light up eyes. And I think I even commented, uh, to the guy working there. I was like, oh man, it doesn't have light up eyes. Don't you remember the light up eyes? And he said, no. It's
0: funny how often we come back to talking about, uh, vhs boxes that we remember from walking through the video store as a kid <laughs> uh, i feel like th- this is a this is a recurring theme like didn't we get into one time the the jason goes to hell video video box cover
1: um i think so what was special about that one
0: well it's just really eye-catching it's it's like a metal looking jason mask that's got this demon snake coming out of one of its holes it's just gross looking and that uh, fitting for that movie
1: ah well, you know, I just looked up a bloody disgusting article, The Coolest and Most Unique Horror VHS Boxes. Uh, it reminded me of Dead Pit. It also reminds me that, oh, the, uh, uh, the VHS box for Metamorphosis, which I believe was George Eastman's, uh, this is the film he directed and <laughs> wrote. Uh, I haven't seen this one either, but it had some sort of light-up eye scenario. And then uh, this rings a bell as well. Do you remember a Fright Night Part Two VHS box that was shaped like a casket? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking it up. Well, you may have implanted a false
0: memory because when you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, that does seem familiar. I just looked up pictures of it and I was like, yeah, actually, I don't think I've ever seen this. So (laughs) your enthusiasm
1: is infectious. It it, it made me remember things I've never seen. Wow. I'm not even seeing this casket thing pop up on eBay, but I was was curious. I was like, how much are these things going for? But uh, maybe they're, they're just too rare. Literally priceless. Mm -hmm. All right, more Beastmaster. This one comes to us from Brad. Hello, gentlemen. I apologize if I am the thousandth person to write in about this, but just in case I'm not, I had a thought as to why Jackie may have reacted the way she did to Dar's ferrets. Uh,
0: Now, remember, this is a thing from the movie where the character played by Carrie Wurrur, Uh, She, she sees uh, Mark Singer's ferrets and she reacts as if there's some kind of like a fantasy creature, like an animal (laughs) unknown in the real world, like a unicorn or
1: something, but they're just ferrets. Ferrets are earth animals. Brad continues. See, ferrets are actually not native to California and also have been deemed too invasive of a species to allow them as pets. So ferrets are actually illegal in California. I have heard that special arrangements can be made to get one that is declawed to prevent uh, predation on other critters and uh, uh de-scented, meaning they remove the scent glands. I believe to make finding mates and therefore breeding more difficult if they were to get out in the wild, but I'm not sure if these rumors are true. Coincidentally, Dar actually commits a federal crime by giving them to Jackie. That one pair could have decimated California wildlife had they been a breeding pair. LOL. Brad. Very
0: good note, Brad. Thank you. And yeah, this does bring to mind the controversy about ferrets in the Big Lebowski, you know, where uh, Walter clarifies that you're not allowed to have an animal like that in California. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. Wouldn't it be funny if that's where the interrogation, when when, uh, Mark Singer gets arrested by the police, uh, if that's where the interrogation went? It's like, I need to know about these ferrets. How'd you get them into the state? (laughs) And that becomes the central plot, yeah. Okay, one last message. This comes from Alan, and it is about the Green Bay's Vampire and uh, the song about green stamps. Alan says, greetings from England, and thanks for the fascinating show. I am having trouble believing that trading stamps are so forgotten that adult people don't even know what they were. Here, Green Shield stamps were given out by supermarkets, so many stamps for each pound spent. And I remember sticking them into books for my parents, then full books could be taken into the Green Shield shop and spent like money on goods out of their catalog. You can imagine the piles of books necessary as the big co-op stamps fill a whole page and is worth uh, 1.33 pence. The U.S. blue chip stamp is worth one, quote, mil, which I take to be a tenth of a cent. I believe when the stamps went obsolete, the stores continued just selling for cash and still exist under the name Argos. All the best, Alan. Or maybe that maybe that's Argo. A-R-G-O-S. And then Alan attaches uh, pictures of the Green Shield stamps. It's funny, after I saw these, I, I had a memory of within the past year... Um, some of my in-laws going through a relative's uh, uh, possessions and finding a bunch of these in a box, and I, I didn't know what they were.
1: All right. I was doing a little searching in the background, and uh, I just want to let everybody know that I did find on eBay um, uh, an old entry. Well, not that old, from January. Uh, the Ultra Rare Fright Night Part 2 VHS in the Coffin Presentation Pack. Uh, it went for $380. Whoa. Yeah. So that's a serious collector's item there. Maybe literally worth its weight in gold. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and call it there, but we'd love to hear from everyone. If you have uh, responses to any of these listener mails, uh, write in. Let us know. Let's keep the conversation rolling. Uh, If you have uh, anything you want to add regarding previous episodes of the show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, or Weird House, uh, thoughts about potential future episodes... Uh, yeah write in and let us know if you have memories of particular weird VHS tapes from uh, from VHS rental stores of old uh, yes definitely write in and tell us all about that uh, send us pictures if you have them in the meantime if you want to check out other episodes of uh, listener mail they come out on Mondays we do artifact on Wednesday that's short form core episodes of stuff to blow your mind Tuesdays and Thursdays and on Fridays we do weird house cinema that's our time to set aside most serious matters and